Rarecast listeners, virtual registration for the 2021 Rare Patient Advocacy Summit is now open. Gain insights about the latest in rare disease innovations, best practices for advocating on an individual and organizational level, and actionable strategies you can implement immediately to accelerate change. Register now and learn more at globalgenes.org forward slash event forward slash patient hyphen summit. That's globalgenes.org forward slash event forward slash patient hyphen summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Despite the ability of whole genome sequencing to diagnose patients with rare genetic diseases, the technology still leaves many patients without a clear diagnosis. Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine, which has innovated the use of rapid whole genome sequencing in the neonatal and pediatric ICU, is now working to diagnose patients left undiagnosed by whole genome sequencing with long-read whole genome sequencing through a collaboration with Pacific Biosciences. We spoke to Matthew Bainbridge, Principal Investigator and Associate Director of Clinical Genomics at Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine, about the collaboration, how long-read sequencing differs from traditional whole genome sequencing, and why this is helping to find answers for undiagnosed patients with rare genetic diseases. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Well, we're going to talk about Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine, the use of whole genome sequencing as a diagnostic tool, and a recent research collaboration you've entered into with Pacific Biosciences. Perhaps we can start with the challenge of diagnosing a rare disease. We hear a lot about the diagnostic odyssey, but what does it take today for a parent with a child with a rare disease to get an accurate diagnosis? That's a great question. Um, First and foremost, it takes luck. So even with the best diagnostic tools we have, the diagnostic rate, a genetic diagnostic rate is still in sort of the 30 to 40% range. Um, Most parents will start out getting a microarray, then they might get a panel, then they might move on to an exome, and then they might move on to whole genome sequencing, although that's still pretty rare. Um, and if all of those fail, then often they'll end up in a research study, um, possibly in the undiagnosed diseases network or something similar. Um, it usually takes a lot of tenacity on the parent's part or a very, very good and dedicated clinician to sort of push all those diagnostic tests. And what is the consequence of a delayed diagnosis? Um, I mean, at its very worst, it's death. Uh, at its very, very worst, it's a preventable death, right? Where I, there was a treatment for what the kid had, and it was some extremely rare disease, and the MDs just didn't get to it in time. I will say that I think it's very rare. 
Um, you know, a lot of our physicians are very committed and very strong, a lot of my colleagues. And so, you know, they, they eventually get around to the right treatment. Um, but that's the absolute very worst thing. Um, equally quite terrible, sort of you could get permanent damage. So you could have a kid who is seizing and not responding and they seize for so long that they suffer permanent brain damage. Uh, you could get kids that had un unnecessary procedures right? And, you know, some of them are benign, right? A blood draw is pretty benign. Your analysis is pretty benign. But some kids could end up getting liver transplants that actually aren't beneficial for them. So really expensive and really sort of a, a traumatic procedure. Um, and even when you don't have those sorts of very physical and um, expensive problems, you have these sort of social, psychosocial issues, right? You know, parents, I always picture them sort of they're lost at sea, right? They're, they're in a raft. Um, and they don't know what's wrong with their child, and they don't know what the future is going to hold, and they don't know if they're ever going to find a treatment, and they don't have anyone they can relate to. I actually remember fairly, very early on in my career, I was shadowing uh, an MD, and he was meeting some parents who had a child with an undiagnosed rare disease, and they said, you know, we would go to one group, and they'd say, oh, you're so lucky, you know, your, your kid can sit up. That's amazing. None of our kids can sit up. And then they go to a different group and they say, oh, we feel so bad for you because, you know, your kid isn't vocal. All our kids are, are vocal. They can, they can talk and they, they can respond to things. And so they never really felt that they belonged in either of the sort of support groups that they found. Um, and I think we really, I think we underappreciate and underestimate how hard that is for parents, having a kid with an undiagnosed disease and, and going through this often very lengthy odyssey. You mentioned a moment ago, even with the best diagnostic tools like whole genome sequencing, diagnosticians are often left without an answer to provide for why a child has a condition. What, why is that? Why, why is there this gap even with today's tools in being able to say definitively, this is what's wrong with the child? That's a great question. Um, and I've thought about it a lot. In fact, that's kind of what I've dedicated the last 10 years of my life to, figuring out why we can't diagnose these kids. And on one level, there's probably a certain number of kids where it's not genetic. Uh, and as someone who studies genetics, it pains me to say that because I'd like to think everything is genetic, but there's probably some kids where their disease isn't genetic. It, it's something else, it's something environmental or something that happened to them that is causing their disease. Um, broadly speaking, there are things where we can't detect it. Right, um, and that could be some variants like structural variants. Um, that could be, you know, methylation signals where we just sort of, when we sequence, we aren't looking for these things. We can't detect the genetic um, variant that is causing the disease. Um, I think there's a large portion of kids where we can detect the variant, we can detect the thing that's causing the damage, but we can't interpret it as being damaging. And so these are cases where you know, there's parts of the genome we understand very well, sort of the genes, the exons, the, the coding portion of the genome. We understand these parts very well, but we don't understand the other parts of the genome. So there's non-coding portions of the genome. Um, if you think of it as a recipe book, it's the parts of the genomes that aren't recipes. And we just are not good at understanding what a, a typographical error or, or, or a deletion of a sentence of those things does. Um, and then of course there's novel disease genes, right? And so we've seen a really strong push in the last 10 or 15 years in identifying new disease genes. And a kid who has a mutation in a gene that 
isn't currently associated with disease, we can't diagnose that child until we've done the research and can establish the association between mutations in the gene and the disease that the kid has. In the past, we, we've spoken to Stephen Kingsmore about Project Baby Bear. Uh, listeners may be familiar with that, but while I have you, this is work that Rady has done to really pioneer the use of whole genome sequencing into the, uh, the NICU, the, the newborn ICU, to get rapid answers for kids who appear to have a, a, a genetic disease. I know a study ran recently in the American Journal of Human Genetics. What did the study show? Um, I think, broadly speaking, it showed that if you have young, I mean, we concentrated on kids less than a year of age, acutely ill children that were admitted to an ICU, so a, so a NICU or a PICU, a pediatric ICU, if we don't know what's wrong with them, if it isn't obvious, you know, if they weren't in a car accident or something like that, they should get rapid whole genome sequencing because um, it will save money. Uh, and, and purely just on a purely monetary level, it will save money, uh, not to mention any of the psychosocial benefits. And I think the thing that uh, Project Baby Bear really showed was that genetics needs to be moved more to a first tier test rather than a, a second or third tier test, that people should be thinking, you know, genetics earlier on in the diagnostic odyssey for these kids. And what's the lasting impact of the work? Is it now being adopted as a standard practice in newborn ICUs? Yeah, our, I, I will defer a little bit to Grace here, actually. I think we're going to see California is going to start reimbursing uh, whole genome sequencing for kids increasingly now. Do you expect that at some point we'll move to the use of whole genome sequencing ever becoming a, a universal newborn screening tool? You know, that is, uh, that's the dream. Right, that is absolutely the dream, and I will I'll tell you a little story um, about why this really speaks to my heart. I joined the institute almost five years ago now, and the very first kid they sequenced when I was here, they also diagnosed, and this was actually a 16-year-old girl who was just going out with her friends on a Friday night, and she just dropped, and her friends didn't know what to do, and you know, and they resuscitated her and they brought her in and we sequenced her and we found out she had a mutation in a gene called RYR2 and RYR2 helps coordinate your heartbeat, right? So she basically had a, a cardiac arrest event. And, you know, it was great. We got a diagnosis and there's actually a drug you can give them called flecainide. And the doctor really was happy with getting a rapid diagnosis because could put her on flecainide and know she wouldn't have another event and could sort of delay the surgery that she was going to get for a couple of days so that she could recover a bit more. So the doctor was really appreciative. Um, and because I was going to do a, a talk about it, six months later, I looked her up and she had suffered um, brain damage, uh, huge harm from, for the amount of time that she was down. And so it was great that we'd made this diagnosis. It was great that we had some treatments that we could give her. Um, but wouldn't it have been so much better if we could detect this mutation, you know, a week before she had the event, but better yet, you know, the, the moment she was born. Um, and, and could have done something about it to prevent it. And being able to do sequencing, broad sequencing, whether that's whole genome or whole exome or a couple thousand genes um, would just be tremendous. And I can think that there would be so many kids that we could benefit. Um, and, and, and the benefits just, you know, you, you think of it as a screen, so you'll just, you'll get some kids, you know, early on. 
but you can also imagine the thing that we do at Radies and we do so well is this really ultra rapid sequencing, right? The kid comes in, the kid's sick, we sequence them in 13 hours. But there's an even faster genome and it's the genome you got, you know, the, the moment you were born before you actually need it. And I can't imagine the benefits of living in a world where your kid could show up in the NICU or pick you. And, you know, the, the doctors can just call up their genome and say, and say, okay, given these symptoms, is there anything in the genome, you know, that could uh, contribute to this? And, and that's a thing that could take five minutes, you know, and, and to either find a diagnosis and say, oh, it's probably this, we should be doing this, or to not find anything and say, okay, we can probably eliminate genetic cause. That, that's amazing. That would just be hugely amazing. Is the problem cost? Is it inability to translate the data into actionable information? Is it something else? What, what will it take to get to the point where this becomes a, a universal newborn screening tool? I mean, I think cost is a big component of it. I think newborn screening right now costs about $100. Um, I think sequencing right now would probably be on the same order of magnitude. So you'd sort of be talking about doubling the cost, or maybe even a bit more. Um, costs are not insurmountable though, right? So what we've seen is that costs have come down in sequencing tremendously. So 20 years ago, the first human genome, about 500 million or a billion dollars, depending on who you ask. And now it's a couple of grand. Um, so costs are not a thing that I worry about too much. I think there's a lot of political social issues around it. You know, do parents want the government or some other agency having the full genome sequence of their kid? Um, a lot of these agencies feel that they're already overburdened with even the limited number of newborn screening tests that they do. And so to say, oh, we want to screen for 2000 conditions, I think would make their heads explode. And they would see that there's just going to be this huge burden. Um, there's, there's additional issues that right now the, the logic under newborn screening is that there sort of has to be a specific, essentially curative treatment, right? That they don't look for all seizure genes, even though you could give kids phenobarbital or Keppra or something for most seizures, they just don't look for it. They wait for the kid to have the seizure first. And so that would require sort of a real paradigm shift for the people who do newborn sequencing now to sort of be willing to screen for more things, even if there wasn't necessarily a treatment for it. Um, and I think that that's going to be a major issue. At the end of June, Rady Children's announced a research collaboration with Pacific Biosciences. The studies focused on using long read whole genome sequencing in cases where short read whole genome or exome sequencing failed to yield an answer. Can you explain the difference between long read whole genome sequencing and short read whole genome sequencing? Absolutely. Um, so imagine your genome's a book. And it's actually, in a way, kind of a boring book because lots of it's repetitive. So imagine on page 50 in chapter three and then page 100 in chapter eight, we actually have a page that's exactly the same. It reads exactly the same. As it turns out, the one on page 50 actually codes for a gene. So it's really important, say, to the plot of the book. But the, the page on 100 doesn't code for a gene. It codes for a pseudogene. So it's not important for the book. In fact, you could skip all of chapter eight and you wouldn't miss out anything. And so when you get a mutation or a variant, which we, in this case, we'd think of it as like a typographical error. We have a typo, 
how do we know it came from page 50 versus page 100? And when you use short read sequencing, you're basically reading a sentence at a time or a couple of words at a time. And that means you can detect the typo, but you can't tell whether it came from page 50 or page 100. Long read sequencing is like reading whole pages or multiple pages at a time. And so because we know that this typo is also associated with page 49 and page 51, we actually know that that typo must have come from page 50 and not from page 100. And, and so that's really one of the major benefits of long read sequencing is that you can get into these regions of the genome that are highly repetitive um, and therefore can't really sort of be read one sentence at a time very effectively. Are you at a point where you can make the case that long read sequencing can identify disease causing genetic variants that short read sequencing fails to identify? Yeah, absolutely. We can 100% say that. Um, in our case, with our 25, five of which were controls, in the 20, we didn't make a new diagnosis. So in that case, it wasn't beneficial. But in one of our controls, there was a mutation that we knew we could not pick up on short read sequencing. And it was exactly this case. It was a gene that has a pseudogene and we just could not place the reads um, over the, the correct. We couldn't tell that it, the mutation was actually in the, the, the actual functional gene. And then when we did it with long read sequencing, clear as day, no problem. When we took the 20 cases where, that we didn't make a diagnosis and we said, well, did we still find mutations that look bad? So they are highly deleterious. We know that they would stop gene function that we didn't pick up with short read. And we found a handful, about a dozen of those sorts of mutations. In this case, they weren't diagnostic because various reasons, usually the, the gene is also recessive. So you actually need a second hit in the other copy of the gene, but we're definitely picking up variants we weren't able to pick up with short reads. How are you going about the study and, and how long will it run? Um, so the initial push was to just get cases that were very close to some of our clinicians' hearts. So there are cases where they think absolutely this must be genetic. There's something going on in this kiddo and yet the short read sequencing did not yield a result. So they said, you know, I really want you to look at these kids because we really need to get a diagnosis and we're very convinced it's genetic. Um, then we did a second cohort, which we've just gotten results back on yesterday. So I haven't had a chance to look at it at all. Where actually we concentrated on diseases where we think long reads are gonna be more beneficial because the genes are harder to sequence with short reads. And as that turns out, that's a lot of immune diseases. And kids often don't get diagnosis in immune diseases. So we actually sort of picked out a cohort primarily of immune kiddos. Um, and we think, we're hoping we're gonna run this study for at least about a year. Um, in the end, you know, if long reads, if we had a diagnostic rate of like 30% and long reads could push us up to 33 or 35%, I would think that was tremendous. But in order to be able to make that case, we're gonna have to do 40, 60, 80 um, cases. And from a process, time, cost point of view, how does long read sequencing compare to short read sequencing? The, the process is very similar. You know, you draw blood, you extract the DNA, you put it on the sequencer, uh, you do some bioinformatics to sort of figure out where the reads came from and look for variants. So in that case, that's very similar. Um, the time is not as short, so they, the the long read sequencers take longer to run, but it's 
not an order of magnitude longer. So our fastest short reads are sort of 13 hours. Most places do 48, 72, and you can do long reads sort of in 24, 48, 72, that sort of length, right? So it's not much, much longer, but it is definitely longer. Uh, cost is a factor. So it's sort of two to three times the cost of doing short read sequencing. And so I think that's has sort of slowed down the uptake because um, generally, if you told someone, you know, you can do 10 kids very thoroughly with long reads, or you could do 30 kids almost as thoroughly with short reads, they'd usually say it's better to go after the 30 kids. Tools tend to be good for specific purposes. You know, it's, it's much better to use a, a screwdriver for a screw than a, than a hammer. Is long read sequencing better for diagnosing certain types of genetic mutations than others? Yeah, so like a, with my initial analogy, um, genes that have pseudogenes or repetitive elements, it's really good at getting in there and sort of finding the typos and pinning them down. Um, but we also think that long reads are much better at picking up what we call structural variants. So if a standard variant is like a typographical error in a book, a structural variant might be you rip out three chapters, you turn them upside down, you stick them back in. Um, the reason why is that these kinds of big structural variants are often mediated by these repetitive elements. So these two pages that are very identical, that's sort of what allows the structural variant actually relies on that identicalness to, to cause the, the inversion or the, the ripping out and the replacing. Um, and so it's not always easy to actually tell that's happened when you're only reading a sentence at a time. When you're reading multiple pages, it's much easier. And in fact, one of the cases that we did with PacBio was a case where we really, really thought we had a translocation. And that's where a piece of a chromosome goes and attaches to another piece of a chromosome. And it looked very convincing, really, really convincing off of short read. And then when we did it with PacBio, we actually saw that it was a insertion of, of a, a tiny little bit of processed pseudogene. Sorry for all the jargon. Um, and that, that it wasn't really anything that drastic as a translocation. And so in that sense, you know, it's great that we could very quickly eliminate this as, as something that we, that is disease causing and not waste a lot of time pursuing it. Um, and although that's less exciting than getting a diagnosis, it actually saves a lot of resources on the back end, uh, trying to validate things that aren't actually there. Are there usually clues as to when, uh, it might be more appropriate to use a long read sequencing, or is it just a matter of progressing when, when you fell on an earlier test? So I will say, I don't really know the answer to that. I think there are some diseases where we'll find that the causative genes are more light, are harder to sequence with short reads. And therefore, if someone has, like, like I said, with immune disorders, probably long reads are going to get you more diagnoses in immune disorders than in other kinds of disorders. Um, but I don't think we have a really clear answer of like, oh, we should immediately go to long read on this kiddo. And it's much more, let's try short read first. If that fails, let's, let's move on to long read. Are there other things you found or things you're hoping to find from this work? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, obviously, we're hoping to make more diagnoses. Um, I would really love to find out that our immune cohort, we make a couple diagnoses in there and then I can just recommend that every immune kiddo we have, we can just send straight over to long reads. Um, I am hoping that we can find uh, 
weird stuff. Like I, I like the weird stuff. Once you eliminate all the sort of common stuff and, and normal things that everyone looks for, all you're left is, is, is the weird stuff. And I'm hoping we make some diagnoses with some weird things as well. Um, because it's, it's great for the kid to get a diagnosis. And it's also good for us to figure out the kinds of other things that we should be looking for. Matthew Bainbridge, Principal Investigator and Associate Director of Clinical Genomics at Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine. Matthew, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.